You know, I wonder uh, how much time you've ever spent considering uh, near-death experiences that people talk about having. Yeah, because if you think about it, I, I, there's really not a better way to sort of get a grasp of a culture's value system than by seeing what they think about the afterlife. Uh, is there an afterlife? Like, if so, what's it like? How does one get to that place? Um, well, the question, I think, obviously gets even more and more relevant the older that you get. When you get closer to that time and your own passing begins to occupy your fears. Well, a number of weeks ago, I was listening to uh, some of the, uh, the White Horse Inn guys do a podcast where they were discussing uh, popular culture's ideas of near-death experiences. Um, it was really quite entertaining. And there was a book that they looked at called Heaven is for Real, where young Colton Burpo describes what the afterlife is like. He says, after explaining that he'd been to heaven and had seen the angels, Colton's father asked what they looked like. The boy responded by saying, well, one of them looked like Grandpa Dennis, but it wasn't him because Grandpa Dennis has glasses. Colton went on to say that he actually talked with Jesus while sitting in his lap. Hey, Dad, did you know that Jesus has a horse? A horse, he said. Yeah, a rainbow horse. I got to pet him. There's lots of colors. Colton later revealed that Jesus had sea green, bluish eyes and brown hair. God the Father looked like a larger version of the angel Gabriel with blue eyes, yellow hair, and huge wings. And the Holy Spirit was bluish and kind of hard to see. (laughs) The podcasters were kind of giggling among themselves about like, that's what the Holy Spirit is described as in church history, bluish and kind of hard to see, right? In another version of this experience, uh, New York uh, number one best-selling author Sylvia Brown writes a book called Life on the Other Side, A Psychic's Tour of the Afterlife, released in 2002, where she basically says that on the other side of the grave lies a giant scanning machine. She says it's a huge convex dome of pale blue glass, and inside that glass dome, we watched all the events of our life play out before our eyes, almost like a movie but in three-dimensional hologram form. So we have to ask, of course, who it is that judges the life that we've just completed. She says, it's not God, nor is it our spirit guide. It's actually us. We judge ourselves, our triumphs and our failures. Our spirit guide will comfort us throughout the whole difficult process. But ultimately, the final verdict about our success or failure is ours. Hmm. Does anybody hear anything strange about these experiences? You know, so often these books of these experiences, they almost come with with, with a uniform description of their experience. Uh, As it turns out, I learned from this podcast, there's apparently a journal, uh, an academic peer-reviewed journal that's called the Journal of Near-Death Experiences, um, where they've studied the reports of these uh, experiences people had And they've come up with apparently 15 different characteristics that tend to describe near-death experiences from people. And what they say is, is so oftentimes, people's ideas about the afterlife and what they experience in these things are just a projection of that present culture's values in their own spiritual moment. Uh, In other words, they have this sort of idea of the good, Uh, This idea of simply being oneself, true to your humanity, and optimistic. Uh, And it's always very affirming of your life choices, regardless of what those life choices might be. 
so that the commentators conclude this. They say, so in the American near-death experience, there is this kind of vague, deistic kind of being called God who's still on the periphery, even in these near-death experience moments, because it really is all about the individual's life, about self-improvement, about coming back from the dead and making some changes. In other words, it's just the American cultural narrative of self-discovery and self-improvement with some kind of vague spiritual language and experience wrapped around it. Do you see what they're saying? So often, when when you look at what pop culture says about our life on that other side, you find that their near-death experiences are just projections of their own worldview. It's what you bring into the experience that makes them what they are. Well, I want to wrap up our study that we've been doing this holiday season that I've entitled Redeeming Nostalgia with a look at the future. Because I want to consider this morning like where our nostalgia is taking us. Um, Because if you think about it, nostalgia is is inherently forward-looking. That is, it's, it's about what we expect in the future. It's about what we long for in the future. And knowing what the Bible describes as our future, I think, helps us deal with our nostalgia and direct it in the place where Jesus has actually taught us to learn. And so we get the imagery from the book of Revelation. Don't gasp when I tell you that we're going to dive into this. Because as you know, the book of Revelation is oftentimes misunderstood. And I'm going to be presenting to you uh, an understanding of this particular book that is true from our uh, theological perspective and you know, true to the text as much as we can do so. But suffice it to say that John is using a lot of Old Testament imagery to help describe the situation in which God's people will find themselves in when they reach the end of their journey in this life for our, or, or uh, for uh, the future of our nostalgia. And I think you're going to see that some of our more wooden attempts to take a literal view of the book of Revelation are stymied when you begin to realize exactly what John is doing. But I can introduce it in this way and say this. The primary notion that guides the Christian description of the afterlife is the idea that we will be a bride adorned for her husband in the afterlife. That's the imagery that we get in chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation that Kurt just read to us. So I'm going to look at three things this morning about this bride. Number one, I want to look at the bride's new location. Secondly, I want to look at the bride's new look. And then thirdly, the bride's new life. A location, a look, and a life as we dive into this. First of all, the bride's new location. Verses 1 through 8 in chapter 21 give us a glimpse into the kind of place that we're going to live in. And there's two poles that I think need to be emphasized here, and they're, they're both a little bit surprising, I think. First, we find that heaven is not a place up in the sky. Look at verse uh, 2. It says that the new heavens and the new earth are actually coming down. John sees the new heavens and the earth coming down out of heaven. Uh, uh, Nashville pastor Scotty Smith wrote a little study book on Revelation where he says this. He said, it is more accurate to say that heaven is going to come to us than to say that we are going to heaven. According to the scriptures, our eternal celebration is not going to take place somewhere up in the clouds, but rather right here in God's world, which will be totally remade and renewed. Hmm. 
you know, you've heard me mention that there is a, there's a heresy that has plagued Christianity really from the very beginning that we call Gnosticism. Now, look, there's a whole complex of ideas in that heresy, but at its heart is this tendency to, to, to value or to elevate the spiritual and immaterial over the physical and the embodied. The spiritual is where the real life of the world happens. It's where our real life uh, should be lived out. In other words, this passage is telling us, though, that the thing that's going to happen in our extended future in the afterlife will be God taking the kind of existence we exist in now and renewing it. In other words, there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that our existence will not be continuous with the one we have now, that's solid. I got a chance to have dinner with Curtin. I got to have dinner with Richard Pratt, Old Testament professor at the Reformed Seminary in Orlando. And I got a chance to kind of quiz him. I'm sure I annoyed him a whole lot, as I did, during their dinner about the question of the kingdom of God. And in the midst of the conversation, he ended up saying that, you know, we proclaim a certain view of Christian nostalgia every time we say the Lord's Prayer, like we just prayed. He said, because in that prayer, we always long for what? For God's will to be done on earth in the way that it is in heaven. Richard went on to say that, like, we're always trying to bring heaven to earth. That's the central prayer, to see earth transformed by heaven. So what that means is heaven is not up in the sky. It's simply God's space among our space, but hidden from our eyes. It's been veiled because of our rebellion against him. We can't see the unseen world. So what does that mean for the way we look at Revelation? Well, there's a wonderful commentator named Eugene Peterson. We lost him this year, as a matter of fact, when he passed away. But I think it's one of the best statements about understanding Revelation I've read. It says this. He says, heaven is not remote, either in time or space. But it's immediate. Heaven is not what we wait for until the rapture or where we go when we die. But it is what is barely out of the range of our senses, but brought to our senses by St. John's visions. We are now able to look upon the events around us that are symbolically described in the book of Revelation, not as a hopeless morass of pagan deception and human misery, but as the birth pangs of a new creation and a beckoning to participate in God's remaking of a new creation. It's as good as it gets on Revelation right there. Keep reading it. It gets better and better each time. So there's a sense in which we got to think about the afterlife as being continuous. It's a physical existence in brand new bodies with real material existence. But on the other hand, at the same breath, it's also completely new. It's a new heavens and a new earth. I love the fact that you get a description of God in chapter 21, verse 5. Look at this, where he says, Behold, I am making all things new. God, though the ancient of days, is ever the God who makes things new. It is just as much a part of his character to be old and from days beyond as to be brand new. Both the past and the present Meet in the character of God. You know, our culture's obsession with youth, I, I think, kind of amplifies this, doesn't it? Um, I, I came across an article recently that was in the, the USA Today uh, that said apparently 2016 was the largest year on record for plastic surgery. 
Uh, Apparently, $16 billion were spent in 2016 on plastic surgery uh, procedures. By far, the largest percentage of non-invasive surgeries uh, were um, uh, the the, uh, uh, wrinkle injection treatments. Seven million treatments went uh, down in 2016. I don't get the sense that it's decreasing either in the last two years, but that's just me. But I wonder if some of our drivenness when it comes to plastic surgery, I'm not, for this sermon, I'm not knocking anything at this stage. <laughs> Be careful. See the knives coming out. But what if our plastic surgery obsession is driven by our nostalgia? To long for something from the past. You know, to wish that I looked the way that I look. To look in the mirror and realize, I shouldn't be this way. It's driven by something different, I wonder. And what ends up happening is, is the idols of our culture, though idols themselves, may very well have echoes of something that we were created to know. And that is the character of a God who is forever new. Why does he always look like a grandfather in our attempts to draw him? (laughs) He says, I make all things new. Yes, and the ancient of days, but there will be a day when there are no more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more wrinkles. And it seems to me that the mere mention of that, if it sends up longing inside your own heart, that's a true longing for something that actually God intends to enact. You may be in touch with something better than you realize. So the bride's new location in the afterlife is in heaven, uh, but maybe different than what we thought. Secondly, though, we need to look at the bride's new look. The bride's new look. This is one of the best parts of this passage. You get it beginning in verse 21, starting in chapter 21, verse 9. And there's a huge mistake that people make when they're reading this passage. And I'm just going to say it in the most forthcoming way that I can, standing on the theological tradition that uh, we stand upon in this church. Uh, when it comes to Revelation. I'm going to say it very briefly. The descriptions that are given in these verses are not about a city that we will inhabit in in that day. But they are rather symbolic pictures of what we will look like. Okay, that's okay. You can double take to your text. You're like, what? How in the world did he get that? Okay, walk with me through it. Look what it says there. Let me read from Scotty Smith first. He says, All my life I thought that we Christians would be spending eternity walking on streets of gold and having gone through pearly white gates into the eternal city whose cubicle walls are made out of all kinds of precious jewels. Now I find out that we, the wife of Jesus, are the city. (laughs) Bear with me. Where are we getting this? Okay, let's take a look. Go to verse 9. The angel comes to John, and what does he say? He says, Come with me. I want to show you, what does he say? He wants to show him the bride. I want to show you the bride. I want you to see him face to face in this image, in this symbolic image. Then in verse 10, right after that, it says, he carried me away. And what does he show him? The holy city. I will show you the bride. Now take a look at this city. Now I realize this is difficult. Um, Gentlemen, my guess is, is that in all of your most rapturous moments, when you are feeling as amorous as you could possibly feel, that you stared into your loved one's eyes, you probably never said, my darling, you look like a city. You probably didn't say, that was funnier than that, but that's okay, it'll hit you on the way home. But look, if you'll go with me here in a minute, I think you're going to find that it'll unlock this passage in a much more beautiful way because there's three things, at least three things, that we find out about the city, which are really descriptions about us, about what what we're in for. 
Let's dive into it. Number one, we find, first of all, that, that John is overtaken by the beauty of the precious stones. Verse 11 says that the city is radiant. And then you get the list in verses 18 through 21 of all the jewels that will be there. It's pretty interesting. The, the jewels that are listed there is almost the exact same list of the jewels that are present on the high priest's little, little bronze breastplate they used to wear when they would go into the, the Holy of Holies. It's called an ephod. You ever read about this? Well, those gems in that ephod are the same ones mentioned here. What's the point? It means that at the moment of a believing person's death, they are immediately cloaked in unimaginable beauty, in eye-popping beauty, which honestly makes you wonder how much of a motivation of everything that I do is driven by that desire. (laughs) To long to be valuable, to be attractive. And of course, women tend to get this a little more than guys, don't they? It's very easy for men to condescend to women for flipping through their fashion magazines, you know, in their spare time. But it may not be something completely wrong that they've noticed. (laughs) Because what we're talking about in the bride of Christ means that all of the feminine gender is a metaphor for that reality. So it very well well may be that their longing for beauty is a whole lot closer to what God has in store for us than we realize, fellas. The bottom line is this. There is beauty that awaits you. (laughs) Loveliness borrowed, but loveliness nonetheless. Secondly, we get this description of the heights of the walls. The author goes out of his way to talk about how tall and large the walls are. Small little side note. I think that if, you, again, if you're committed to a, an overly wooden literal translation of this, you'll find that it simply doesn't work because these, these walls would have been about 1,300 feet high. One of my favorite commentators in Revelation, a guy named Dennis Johnson, uh, and he says this. He says, as for the height, the top of a city wall that extended 1,365 miles above the earth would extend into the orbit path of some man-made satellites. That's probably not what it means. What he says is, these measurements, however, are not to be understood as physical data, but as enhancing the vision's imagery, listen to this, concerning the church's immensity and security. Ah. (laughs) In other words, what he's saying is, is the reason why John is so excited about the walls is because the population of God's people in that place is immense. It's huge. There's going to be a lot of people there, which is comforting for me. It's comforting me because of the, I don't know whether this is morbid or not, but you know, when you think about the experience of one's passing, and young people, you do that a little bit more the older that you get. When you think about that experience, one of the things that sort of strikes you is, is that nobody gets to go down that path with you. We're all going to take that last journey alone in that moment. But isn't it just like God to assure us in His Word that at the moment of our spirits leaving our bodies, we are in a multitude of people. (laughs) We are suddenly with all of those that came beside. There is not loneliness on the other side because this city is immense. It's got all the people who have come before and confessed Jesus as Lord with them. But not only that, (laughs) in that place, you are safe as a kitten. It talks about the walls not only sort of suggest immensity, but also safety. Listen to Johnson. He says, John is not describing an eternally secure place. He is describing an eternally secure people. That's wonderful. 
Isn't there a desire not only to know that things are well, but that things are going to continue to be well? That you're in a place that can't be spoiled by circumstances or fear or mistakes? No, the walls of the city show that we will be so secure, safe at last. Finally, there's a third marker that we get at the very beginning of chapter 22, where we find that the church in that place will experience intense satisfaction. No more longing, no more wishing, no more nostalgia. All of her hurts have been healed as she begins to drink from the water of the river of life and as she partakes of the the healing balm of the leaves that are there for the healing of the nations. By the way, I hope you have been hearing us sort of uh, do a little bit of a riff on our church uh, um, sort of logo that we sort of try to talk about, that we want to be a home for those who have found their hope in the gospel. But we started adding and a place of healing for the world. Why do we do that? Well, it's because the home that we have as the church, as the body of Christ, that we discovered together because of the hope of the gospel, then sends us out to, be, to get in line with the trajectory of history, which is the healing of the nations, like we see in the very last chapter of the Bible. That's where we're going. Don't you want to be in on that? you got to know that there's a sense in which all of the earthly joys we experience, they just come up empty, don't they? So many things that we know here, they come up empty. But John is saying in that place, that fruit that comes every month, isn't that a weird detail? Why would, that, why would it bear fruit every month? Because it wants you to know that you're never waiting. You're never waiting on the joys that come. They're there. They're immediate. But so many of our joys, they're always at a distance, aren't they? Um, Philip Levy, thank goodness, texted me a great illustration to replace a substandard illustration in the first service. And it came from this little 60 minutes thing. Bear with me. It came from this little 60 minutes interview with none other than Tom Brady. Something he did a few years ago where he was talking about his, um, his uh, career and how well it had gone. And, uh, you know, I mean, Brady, like he is the quintessential successful modern pro athlete, is he not? Uh, you know, Super Bowl rings abound, uh, more money than they, uh, he could ever spend. I think he's married to a supermodel. Is he? Is that right? Maybe still. And yet the interview starts to ask him about his life. And at one point he gets really serious and says, you know, I don't always know why it is that I can look down at my five Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something else out there. There's got to be more than this. And look, if you think that's an isolated experience, then you're not listening to the super successful, very rich very much. That is universal. All those joys, they come up empty, but not there (laughs) because the leaves of the tree are there for our healing. Look, It's true, therefore, much more for poor, obscure people like you and me that for every earthly joy, every holiday, We long for something that hardly ever returns. We want something that this world was just not equipped to deliver. You know, it struck me as I was preparing this that the old old Negro spirituals constantly talk about the fact that this world is not my home. Why would they say that? Well, it's probably because this world rarely had anything to offer them in the experience that they were in, the lifestyle in which they were accustomed. Little wonder that Jesus has such stern warnings for the rich saying things like, (laughs) it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. 
You read those stories, and you're like, why is Jesus picking on my money? Well, he's not. He's just stating a fact that it's difficult when you have all of the things around you in comfort to be reminded of the spiritual truth about you. And that is that you are a needy person, that you are spiritually without any ability to cure your own situation. He's drawing attention to the fact that when all of my life is easy, it tends to sort of neutralize that voice on the inside when we'd have no earthly need. But here's the point. At the moment of my passing from this life, Jesus is assuring us that you will enter perfect satisfaction, perfect contentment from here on out. Again, something that could light up all kinds of serious nostalgia for us. So we see the new location, our new location in heaven. We see our new look of being beautiful and immense and, 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 and safety and secure and safe. Finally, thirdly, we see the bride's new life. What is life about in that place? Well, the, the passage said it over and over again. Look at chapter 21, verse 3. There's a focus there on the fact that the essence of heaven is to be what? With God. That's what it is. Verse 7 says that He will be a Father to us all. Look down at verse 22 of chapter 21. There it's mentioned that in that place there will be no more temple. Why not? What happened to the temple? Well, if you think about the purpose of the temple, the temple was there to mediate your experience of God. It was a place where heaven and earth kind of intersected in that moment where you could experience Him without, well, according to the Old Testament, without it killing you. But that's what the temple was about. (laughs) But in that time, God's presence will no longer be mediated. It'll be immediate. (laughs) He'll be present. He'll be with us. Even the dimensions of the city scream this fact. Did you notice that the dimensions of the city walls make the city a perfect cube? That ought to, that ought to signal you to something. There's some, there's some important cubes in the Bible, not the least of which is the very back room in the temple itself. Do you know this? That like if you, or, or the Old Testament um, worship tent, the tabernacle. When you walked into that tent, you had a big sort of outer room, but in the back of the room where the Ark of the Covenant was, That's where God was. His Shekinah glory, His ball of fire glory would come down and rest over that place. That's where God was. Guess what the shape of that room was? A perfect cube. What's Revelation saying? John is saying that God's presence will be with us. He'll be with us. We will stand and live in His presence in that place. But the point of heaven is not what it is because it will be the cessation of pain and death and sorrow or the presence of untold riches or uh, the gathering of the brotherhood of man or the end of your wrinkles or whatever. Heaven is heavenly because He is there. That's what makes heaven what it is. The fulfillment of mankind's personal destiny is to be with the Lord. Caught up, as C.S. Lewis says, in this Trinitarian dance of joy, if you know him. Um, There's another book in 2005 written by a guy named Howard Storm called My Descent into Death. Listen to what he says. He says, during my near-death experience, I was given the opportunity to ask Jesus and the angels a variety of questions. Here are some of the answers they gave. Question, which is the best religion? I was expecting them to answer something like Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic. But they answered, the religion that brings you closest to God. Question, but which one is that? 
Well, there are good people in bad religions and bad people in good religions. It's not so important which religion, but what individuals do with the religion they've been given. Religions are a vehicle to take you to a destination. The purpose of religion is to help you have a personal relationship with God. God wants us to love Him with all our being and to know the truth of God. If we find God in an intimate, loving relationship, then we're on the right way. Hmm. Mm -mm. (laughs) I wonder if chapter 22, verses 14 through 15 would make Howard Storm a little nervous. Look at what it says. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Hmm. But the implication is this. Um, Yeah, it does matter which religion you follow. And it does matter what the truth of God actually is because our text seems to be suggesting that when it comes down to it, everybody has a relationship with God. The question is, what are the terms of that relationship? And are we prepared in our sin to recognize that this personal relationship with God is defined by His wrath? It's defined by His judgment. I mean, honestly, secular versions of heaven, they always devolve into the same thing, don't they? The good guys get to go to heaven, bad guys are going to hell. But that's not the Christian version of life. The gospel is offered, if you'll notice very carefully, There in verse 17, where it says, to the thirsty. Does that remind you of Isaiah? When Isaiah says, ho, everyone who thirsts, let him come and drink. In other words, the citizens of heaven, the people who live in that place, who see the Lord, have come to a point in their life where they have looked at their judge in the face, and they didn't shrink away from it. Because when they saw their judge, they saw in his blinding holiness an unveiling of a deep and powerful and unquenchable thirst in their hearts. A thirst and a knowledge that there was no performance that was going to win the favor of this particular king. No, in the end, our nostalgia, as it turns out, is either going to be resolved by grace or it will not be resolved at all. But my point in this series, however, has simply to try to compel you that, that the sort of pointing signs to all of these truths are all around us in the holiday season. And oftentimes the longing and the depression that we feel during this season, it's pointing away. It's pointing away from itself to something true that God is trying to scream to us in this world. That our nostalgia has a place. It's got to tell us. What better way to close out this series than listen to C.S. Lewis? He says this, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, they are good images of what we really desire, but they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower that we've not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country that we've never visited. But when you come here, And the Holy Spirit begins to sort of move and sort of take the Word and bring it to life inside your heart. You get a glimpse of it. Have you seen it? Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we need help seeing it because we are blinded. We're blinded, Father, in some ways by our own sentimentality about this season. We look around and we want it to be as sweet and happy as it was when we were little. On the other hand, we're just jaded. We've become scoffers. We roll our eyes at the season. And Father, we feel lost. We pray, Father, that you would take us, even in the midst of our pain and our hurt, that the season often accompanies, and lead us by the hand, by your Spirit, to the truth of what your Word says. That only in you do we find grace. And only in your sacrifice on the cross can we truly come to you and know what it means to have hope. Would you do that for us? We ask you, Jesus.